Yeah, what's up everyone? It is Brian Ford with Self-Improvement Daily. Take ownership of your personal development one tip at a time. Let's get into it. It's time for a self-improvement sit-down. It's an absolute honor to interview world-leading guests and put their full knowledge on display. To me, there's just something so special about hearing someone's expertise and passion. This, of course, is different than the normal two-minute podcasts I share every weekday and Saturday, which serve as the foundation of the self-improvement daily movement. While today's guest is a rising star, his achievements to date cannot be ignored, and I am so excited to share his work with you. All right, it is time to get into it. This is self-improvement sit-down number 23 with one of my favorite podcasters, Mark Metry. And we are live. Today's guest is a good friend of mine and a future leader of this world. His name is Mark Metry, and he's probably best known as the host of the Humans 2.0 podcast. He brings on, in my opinion, the best guests of any podcast out there, which as of last week, Mark, includes Jay Shetty. It's unbelievable. For the last two and a half years, Mark has used his podcast interviews as a way to learn from world-class minds, accelerate his own growth, and he is a true futurist, running a VR and AR marketing consultancy, trying to understand not only how VR will be used in the future, but how we can use it for good, specifically in the mental health and mindset space. In line with that, Mark just published his first book titled Screw Being Shy, where he reflects on his life and his social anxiety and how it crippled him and cripples many others. Yeah, he's a stud. And did I mention he's only 22 years old? Mark, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate you, brother. Brian, it's been a great time knowing you for these last couple of years. And um it's been great to see you rise and you know me, man, I'm just, I'm just doing it for the story. <laughs> That's, yeah. I was going to say, I do want to acknowledge you too. So for those of you who know, uh, I featured Mark in my TEDx talk called do it for the story. And he is the reason I have a podcast. So all of you need to thank Mark for uh, this very conversation. If you know, if you found value out of my podcast, he's the guy. So thank you from Ooh. the bottom of my heart because it's changed my life and I know that it's impacting others. So thank you, Mark. You are, you are the push I needed. So I appreciate you. Let's jump into your story a little bit. Um, it's inspiring to see where you're at today, but it gets even more impressive when we learn about where you came from. Your parents immigrated from Egypt with $200 in their pocket, started a local pizza business, and you did not grow up with the most money as a result. And I imagine that came with many challenges and many lessons. And I just want you to first kind of reflect on what does that time in your life mean to you and what has it done for your development? Yeah, absolutely, man. So, you know, just like everyone, I grew up with my own version of problems. And like you said, uh, an angle of those problems was not really having a lot of money. And, you know, despite this, I still remember growing up with like a super happy, simple childhood of me just like having different memories with like my sister, my dad, my mom just really trying to live our lives to the best of our abilities, just very humbly speaking. And so I think that on one end, it taught me that I don't really need anything from the outside world. I don't need uh, material goods. And um, I mean, I was actually talking to Jay Shetty about this and I actually, cause part of his thing is like being a monk. And I was telling him when I was younger, I actually ended up staying at this monastery, which is like where monks live. And it's like secluded mm -hmm. from, from the wilderness. And I literally slept in like this hut on the ground. And it was probably the, the best time 
of my entire life. And this was before I had mindset. This is before I began to tackle my health. And so when I think about it that way, I honestly think the times where I'm materially the least happy um, or should be the least happy are the times where I'm the most happy. And, and that's just become who I am. And also at that same level, I mean, it's it's also made me resourceful. And I was yesterday on um, the Spartan Up podcast from the Spartan Race uh, company. And they, we were kind of talking about this. We were kind of talking about the fact that if you come from an immigrant from an immigrant background and you face struggle, you face uncertainty, you face your parents having to switch jobs all the time and having to move to a different apartment, that becomes a permanent part of your brain. We're like, you know, now, for example, I don't know when this is going to air, but like, you know, yesterday, like part, like the stock market basically crashed. Um, people are freaking out about Corona. Nobody can go to Italy in or out because there's a massive outbreak going on there. And so I feel like even in, in these times of, of chaos, even though it's not that bad, uh, at least here in America, um, I'm, I'm still pretty comfortable. And so I think that has invaluably just, that has made me who I am today. And, and what I have now, what I just described is something that I always think about in terms of how do I teach this to somebody? Because a lot of people who don't come from this background ask me about this all the time. So yeah, man, it's an interesting question. Well, yeah. And that's exactly why I asked it here because, I mean, we've talked about this before. And when I was on your podcast, it was one of the central themes of kind of the relativity of wealth and mm -hmm. you know, the relativity of what you have and what you aspire to have, you know, and we do come from very different backgrounds. That's something that we definitely highlighted in that conversation. And I think your, like you said, resourcefulness and humility for uh, what you had and kind of the platform that it gave you to now excel you know, kind of in life and where it's taken you, I think, you know, you wouldn't trade it for the world because, you know, you wouldn't change yeah. anything about yourself. And it's, it's something that we all need to really confide in is our own path and really respecting that, you know, some factors in front of us are just the way that they are. And we need to respect that and make the most of it. Um, so and I really do respect you for that perspective. And I think that you sharing it um, helps a lot of people come to terms with maybe some of the uh, inequities that they felt in their life, maybe, you know, that kind of provides some validation around those. So I'm definitely mm -hmm. proud of you for that perspective and kind of, a, you know, a compliment to, um, to that childhood, uh, you know, kind of the more impoverished side of it is also extreme introversion and social anxiety. And you've described this as crippling, you know, it leads to a host of downstream consequences. And you've mentioned depression, suicidal thoughts, weight gain, asthma, rashes. Wow. Yeah. Yikes. So can you tell us kind of about social anxiety and how it has affected you throughout your life? Yeah. So, so all throughout my life, I was always an introvert, right? And so before the time I recall becoming socially anxious, uh, like I had a tight circle of friends. I, you know, I wasn't someone who was like shouting in the classroom. I was just like a well, not necessarily well-spoken, but I was just like a, a normal person, I guess. Like I wasn't the most extroverted and I also wasn't super, super shy. I was just a normal person who was introverted. Like I think a lot of people are. And so, you know, when I kind of talk about this, Brian, I have to sort of lay down some definitions and some structure first, because sure. a lot of people don't even know what social anxiety is or what really even being shy is. And so it is totally normal to be an introvert. Okay. Introvert is a character trait. You're either an introvert or an extrovert. Sometimes you're in the middle. 
But an introvert is defined as someone who predominantly spends most of their time and energy focusing on the internal world, their ideas, thoughts, emotions, and therefore get energy from being in that world. Extroverts do the opposite. They're mostly focused on the outside world, like the, the design of this. This thing is curved in a certain way. That's the way that their brains work. And so that's what an introvert is, okay? Nothing wrong with that whatsoever. Now, people who are introverts are more likely to become socially anxious and to become extremely shy. And so when you look at shyness as an emotion, it is a very natural human emotion that is on a spectrum, okay? So we are all shy to a degree. Everyone is shy, whether it's, you know, you, I don't know, like you walk into a gym that you've never been to for the first time and you see a ton of ripped dudes <laughs> and you don't have any muscles, okay? And you're shy for like the first 10 minutes, okay? That's totally normal. Or you go to like an event for the first time and you don't really, you didn't bring anybody with you. You don't really know anybody there. And you're shy for like that first part and then you start to meet people and it starts to become a little bit less um you know socially awkward and so that is totally normal now there are people who are like that are shy all the time they are shy in every environment they are shy no matter who they are with and if this is perpetuated enough eventually it does become a mental health problem called social anxiety where they have been in this feedback loop with their brain and their body for so long where you know if anyone has ever faced being really shy or, or being socially anxious I think we all have you know usually you like walk into a room and your thoughts start racing you might start sweating in like your armpits or your palms or your forehead um, you know your throat starts to tighten up and, and, and clench up and your mind just starts racing and you overthink. And then when it's actually your time to talk, you don't have anything to say because you're so much in your head. And so there are people who are like that all of the time. And that feedback loop that I just described of your body kind of feeling these stresses, eventually this will happen to the point of where you'll lose control of this feedback loop system. And you will just walk into every room or anything with people and your mind will automatically get into this fight or flight response. And so personally, that was my life up until, you know, I, I moved schools in like the second grade. I was like nine, 10. And then I moved into um, this new school that was outside of the, the city. And, you know, previously at this time, you know, my parents, like we, we grew up in like the projects. So we grew up in, in areas that w everyone else was super poor too. And so when we met, when we moved to this new area, I mean, for sure, there were some poor people, uh, but, but, but no, there, and this was like a rural, um, relatively like upper middle class area. And so I remember like this, this time in my life, this was like one of the first times I ever saw like nice cars and nice houses. And, um, and that was really the time, if anything, where I did begin to feel um, issues like around with money. I never, again, I never thought like, wow, I have no money, but it was like, oh man, I'm, I'm like, I'm wearing the same sweatshirt because I don't have another sweatshirt or I'm mm -hmm. wearing these same clothes. But yet these kids ne sitting next to me in the classroom are coming in and they're wearing like the latest Yeezys that their parents got them. And so there was a little bit of that. And then also the main thing was that um, 
you know, I'm not, I'm not white. I'm not Caucasian. Like I, like you said, my parents, you know, were from Egypt. And so this town, super small town, 5,000 people, uh, there was nobody, nobody in that town who was not white. There were maybe a couple other families, but, um, I was basically in this environment where nobody looked like me. And also at that same time, I also experienced a, a fairly bit amount of racism. You know, this is a time where, um, you know, this is post 9-11 in America. And so the Middle Eastern brand and the perception of that was really tanking. People thought that, you know, Middle Easterns are going to kill everyone. We're going to be terrorists and we're all Muslims and all this stuff. And so I heard all that when I was growing up and I heard that like almost every day. And I was also just bullied in other ways aside from my race. And so a lot of these environments, Brian, really came together and they really put me in this mindset, this bubble that I look on back now as like so clearly. It was almost like like the same way that I look at my life today as like I made changes in my life and there was a period where there was sort of a line in the sand where I was Mark version 2.0. At that same time, when I entered into this mask of okay, I'm just going to put my head down and I'm not going to talk to anybody because I don't want to get hurt again. That was also like a line in the sand that in the moment while it's happening, you don't know it's happening because that's what trauma is. But when you look back at it, you're like, holy crap, there was like a whole before and after even then. And so also at that same time, in those factors in the environment, I also began to get sick, like physically sick. I also began to get things like uh, asthma, uh, ADD, uh, various issues with like um, different organs, like my appendix, my bladder, uh, not being able to sleep at night, being uh, prescribed uh, with various medications that ultimately ended up like draining my energy and having a ton of other side effects. And so basically, I'm like this kid growing up, I'm like in the third grade, and I have no physical energy in my body to do anything. And I also have this whole sort of mental side going on that was really like the way I think of it is like really just like a perfect storm that kind of made mm. me, I think, an extreme case of social anxiety. And, you know, the reason why I'm making this book and why I wrote this book is because, um, you know, I, just like you said, I interview some of the, the greatest people on my podcast. And yet I don't really see a single person talking about people who seriously experience and suffer from social anxiety and being overly shy. Because, I mean, if you can't communicate yourself to other people because you have social anxiety, that's a terrible, terrible recipe for life. And then as I was looking at the data, you know, you look at it, social anxiety is the most common anxiety disorder. And it's also heavily correlated with later on in life, substance abuse and social isolation both of which are correlated to suicide, where I, at 18, was almost suicidal. And so I'm just kind of looking at these data and these factors. I'm like, oh my God, I have to, I literally have to write this book as soon as possible because I've gotten out of this and I, I, I see solutions out there in the world, but they're very much just separate and they don't really talk to each other. They're not coherent. And so my best attempt at this book is to kind of have like a coherent message that can not just be like even like a practical a book that's like backed up by science, but it's also offers like a, a sort of a, a root cause, a, a meaningful understanding at what is actually going on rather than trying to give people a ton of hacks and trips and actually help them, you know, give them a book that they can use to guide themselves. And so that's my hope with this book. 
Yeah, and I can attest to it because I've read it. It's a good balance between the exercises and the suggestions, which are important because you want to take action on something that's bothering you, um, as well as the philosophy behind it. And I think you've done a really good job mixing the two, validating right. and kind of explaining why one thing is required and how it's relating back to your psyche and your general social anxiety in a different way. So I think that's, I think it's really well done. So, I mean, obviously anyone who's experiencing something like this, highly recommend but also I do want to kind of back you up because you said something super interesting. Mm -hmm. And even in your book, there there's a, a study that you shared that kind of explained, it was a Cal Berkeley study that explained that social pain relies on the same neurological regions as physical pain. And you said, I don't know if you caught this, but you said that uh, you became socially anxious because you didn't want to get hurt again. Um, would you mind kind of what that pain was like? Like, or could, could, you, yeah. could you elaborate on what that pain yeah. was like? Yeah, absolutely. So in this study I talk about, they basically show that, and this was, this was sort of like always known through thousands of years, just through like, um, not common sense, but just through like spirituality, but it was always sort of considered woo woo. But now we have the science to prove it of like the same way that when you feel emotional pain, it literally does the same thing to your physical body as you would getting stabbed or punched. Mm. And so that's profound. And, and really, man, I mean, this is really what happened. I mean, it's really a combination of you feeling alone. Like you just get retracted into this bubble and you get into this bubble where you think like, I remember every room I would walk into, my brain would tell me, Mark, look down, go to the back of the classroom. Don't talk to anybody. Don't make eye contact. Because remember that time when you did and you got made fun of or someone, um, or, or, you know, remember that time when you spoke up in front of the classroom and you raised your hand and people made fun of you, which happened multiple times. But um, I mean, essentially, it was like a, it was a it was a mask. It was almost like this suit of armor that I put on in the world. And, you know, in a bigger note is like for me, my mask, my armor was social anxiety. It was the fact of I was I was hurt socially. And, um, you know, I kind of lacked the factors that would enable me to naturally grow through that. And instead, I was just like, hey, I, I don't want to get hurt again. I'm not going to raise my hand again. I'm not going to try to ask out that girl again. I'm not going to try to make new friends because I got rejected that time. And that was so painful. And so everyone sort of has a version of this. And so for, for you, it might not be social anxiety, but it could be saying to yourself like, Hey, I'm gonna, you know, I, I'm gonna become the best student at this school and I'm gonna destroy everybody, academically speaking, and I'm gonna get all A pluses and be the valedictorian of my class. And I'm literally gonna lock myself in a room and study and do this. And then you really drill down to it and you realize that, you know, early on in their life as a kid, their parents associated them loving them and their approval with getting good grades in school. Mm. And so everyone has different version of this, whether it's, you know, you become the jock and you start to get super physically strong because you're like, Hey, I don't want to get hurt again. Or, you know, I don't want my, I don't want my dad to beat me or I don't want this kid at the playground to beat me up. So I'm going to get super ripped so that anytime anyone tries to do this to me again, I'm going to destroy them. And so everyone has a version of that. I think it's what defines us as humans. And so for me, it was social anxiety. And, you know, 9% uh, of adults in America, it's also like that for them. 40% of kids, it's also like that for them. And so, um, 
yeah, I mean, it's hard to explain just through black and white words, but it's super, super important because, you know, I wanted to start off with this because I really do believe that um, psychological trauma is really the root cause of almost every single one of our issues. And I've I've heard this time and time again from interviewing the world's smartest people on my show, from interviewing like the top neuroscientists, the top psychologists, to, to, to billionaires, to entrepreneurs, people that really get this know it's how sort of like the first 10 years of our lives sort of evolved and the patterns and pathways we learned up to that point because it's how the human system works. Our brains are the most receptive at that time. That is the time where in our brains and in our neurons, we are building um, a myelin highway, which is um, this protective layer against all of our neurons to almost hardwire it in. That's why it's so hard to change your behavior, especially things you've been doing as a kid. And you, it's not like you can exactly cut it out. It's not simple. It's not that simple at all. And so that to me, I start off in the book like that because it's so important for people to understand before you get into like the hacks and the tips and tricks. Right. Yeah. And I think, I think you kind of broadly speaking about it right there. I mean, it makes a lot of sense and just how impressionable we are as kids, you know, like, like you said, psychological trauma can take so many different forms and it can project in so many different ways that sure social anxiety was your form of it, but we're all kind of overcoming um, our own little path of it. And actually um, I worked with a NLP practitioner, neuro-linguistic uh, practitioner programming, something like that. I'm not exactly sure what it stands for, but it's the same idea of kind of addressing root childhood trauma and how that is projecting and changing your psyche in your subconscious. And then you can kind of address that and move forward with it. So yeah, I, I mean, of course it takes a bunch of different forms and and thank you for opening up about your history. Cause I know it's, I mean, it's kind of become your responsibility because you've made it out and you can speak to it and you can help a lot of people, but still it's, I'm sure it's not easy to do. So, so thank you for that. And I think kind of that conversation also segues nicely into the heart of your book, which is, okay, what are we going to do about it, right? Because there's the philosophy, then there's the actionable. So what are we going to do about it? And again, the book is called Screw Being Shy, Learn How to Manage Social Anxiety and Be Yourself in Front of Anyone. And there's one line in this book that I want to quote that I think will drive the next part of this conversation. It goes, the moment I realized the experience of my reality is a biochemical equation, everything changed. I started to view my social anxiety as a science project I could work on rather than a moral failure I couldn't touch or change. It's powerful. <sighs> Super powerful. Man, that's that's so powerful, bro. And 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 like the biggest thing, the biggest thing, and I would honestly say a con a theme in what I do of everything is how do you go from being unconscious about something, not knowing, to knowing? to becoming conscious mm. of that thing. Because like I said, Brian, in the midst of all of this, I was not conscious of what was going on. I had no idea. And so when you have no idea, when you aren't conscious, your brain is trying to figure these things out on its own. And if I've learned anything, it's that our brains are definitely, you know, super smart in a way, but also not smart and also very primitive, almost like in an animalistic sense in a way that it's not always right. Our brains can be wrong a lot of the times. And mm -hmm. so the reason why I think that quote is so powerful is because when you are unconscious, you think that this is your fault. You think that there is something inherently wrong with you. And so when I was going through this, first off, I had never heard of the words mental health anxiety, depression, social anxiety. Uh, people just always refer to me as like the shy kid 
like in the back whenever my parents were at like parent teacher conferences or in front of other people. Oh yeah, Mark is just the super shy kid, the super shy kid. I heard that all throughout my life. But when in reality, for sure, it's it's there's a normal, like I said, there's a normal level of being shy. There's a healthy level of being shy. And then there are people who society is labeling as shy or maybe even as introverted. But when in reality, they are not alone because they choose to. They just have social anxiety. And so I think the reason why that quote is so powerful is because once you do become conscious, once you do realize that like, oh my God, this there's this thing called biology. There's this thing called science. There's this thing called cause and effect. There's this thing called, um, you know, just sort of the the lay of the land of the true nature of what mental health really is and how that correlates with things like mindset and success and entrepreneurship. And so when I realized that, I was like, oh my God, this is not like a, this is not a life sentence that I have been sent off to from God or life or, or, or even myself. This is actually sort of my moment to just learn and, and kind of like look at this as a science project and be like, wow, so let me try to take a step. You know, if I pick A, B might happen. And that's really what it's all about. And that's how I had to figure out on how to get out of this on my own. You know, like my book talks a lot about social anxiety and shyness, but really it's a bigger thing for mental health because there was a time in my life where I was depressed and I was even suicidal and I was obese. I was over 200 pounds. And, um, and, uh, that is really the time where I began to, after I kind of hit that rock bottom is when I began to look at myself as a science project and begin to take like those steps that some of them didn't work, you know, but some of them did work and, and they're in this book and there are other steps that have been taken by smarter people than me and by experts and by doctors. And they're also in this book. So I think that's super important, man. I'm so glad you mentioned that. So glad. Yeah, no, I mean, it definitely stood out to me. And I, I appreciate how you expanded the conversation into mental health at large. Because as you're talking about being shy, you know, it's it's not always entirely noticeable what the reason is behind someone being shy. Like they could be introverted and that's when they enjoy, or they, they could be compensating with social anxiety. And the same goes for depression. There are people who are overtly enthusiastic and happy and fun loving who are secretly depressed. So it's like, it's very difficult to be able to attribute one particular thing to a certain condition or just way of behaving. So, I mean, it is a larger mental health conversation. And of course, social anxiety is just kind of one factor within mental health. Um, but I'm, I'm glad that the conversation went there because that, that makes it much more relatable for a lot more people. Yeah. And I posted this thing on my Instagram today. I talked, I said, you know, you can see someone's broken leg, but you can't see somebody's broken brain. And I talk about the fact that most people with mental health conditions, they don't even know. They can't see their broken brain and they aren't aware. And so obviously not every problem is a mental health problem. But honestly, now just looking at the science, I, I really do think so. So let me take you like on a quick detour. Okay. So sure. you look at, for example, I don't put this in the book, but you look at, for example, people who have uh, bipolar disorder and also other kinds of mood disorders. And you also look at a different graph of people consuming um artificial processed sugar and what it does to your brain in terms of your energy is almost the same and so i really do believe that um when someone has like a like an anger outbreak when someone gets like lashes out at you maybe in a social setting i believe a part of that is because you know one they haven't really relieved their psychological trauma 
Uh, not that really any of us have, but they haven't really worked on it. And so that is being pent up. And so the big thing about trauma is that, um, so for example, this is the craziest thing, right? So I was being bullied. I was extreme facing ex- uh, racism in like elementary school and middle school. And yet in high school, where I didn't really experience any bullying or racism, um, that is also where I kind of felt like I was at my lowest in terms of my mental health. And, hmm. the, and the craziest part is, is, if you don't deal with it, then every time that you are in a similar situation, your nervous system is going to activate. It's going to trigger at the same moment that you had that trauma. And so like you could have a trauma and then 10 years later and then not really think about it. But every time you're in the situation, you are acting in a certain way. And so I think a major part why just like we run into a lot of problems with other people in terms of like emotional outbreak, someone getting mad at you, someone resenting you. One, I think it's because of unrelived trauma. And then two, I think it's because of what we're putting in our mouths, in our brains, and how that's creating an effect on our thoughts, our energy, and our mood. And so from that perspective, I really do think a major piece of the conversation is about mental health, right? Because we experience our lives through like what? Our vision. And our vision comes from our eyes. And our eyes work with our nose and our ears and other parts of our feet and our brain for more sensors to add in more information to construct what we see out of our brain. You know, Tom Bilyeu has a a post on this and it's like, the brain is encompassed in absolute darkness 24-7 in our skulls. But yet it's taking all this data, taking all this information, compiling it, and it's making it into one very immersive virtual reality where all of our Hmm. biggest memories, our past emotions, our feelings, previous events that have happened are all conspiring to show us what we think. And so the craziest part about this man is when I was in that period of my life, when I was in that zone where I was at my worst, again, you don't know this at the time and and there's science to prove this, but I literally saw the vision my physical vision, much worse. It almost felt like I saw the world in black and white in like this grayish color and every random face I saw like just on the street where like you aren't really paying attention was frowning, was not happy. And so I'm not saying that I have like, you know, schizophrenia where like I'm looking at someone's face and it changes or anything like that. But if you don't focus on it and it's just like in the corner of your eye and you're not really looking at it, your brain will project whatever it is. And the craziest part about this is when I was like 19 and I was, you know, beginning to like really change my life around, rewire my brain, um, conquer the social anxiety, uh, get mentally healthier and physically and spiritually healthier. I remember there's a specific moment in like the middle of, uh, of 2017, actually, where I felt my vision shift, where I felt my physical vision literally shifted and it became much more vibrant. And so I don't know, I don't know what this has to do. And then it's also mentioned that, um, also at the time when I was young and I was kind of in these traumatic events, that's also the time where I had to get glasses. And so I don't know if that has anything to do with it or what, but there's a lot of you know different things I just said uh, around there. But I think it's really interesting and it sort of paints a, a bigger picture that we don't actually know 100% what's going on with mental health and the way that we think about 
how we think about in the world and how we perceive it. And so it's a, I mean, it's a bigger conversation, but I think it's super important because we don't really know anything. And I think, um, you know, I think if you look at a lot of entrepreneurs and, uh, and technology people, you know, they're saying that the future is outer space. I definitely think part of the future is outer space, but I also think it's inner space mm -hmm. of inside of our mind. I think that's sort of the next frontier of where we're going to go. It's, it's going to get on a smaller front, but in reality, a much bigger front. So yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's exactly why I described you as a futurist at the beginning of this, because you really do kind of predict where society and where technology is going to be. And like, you're kind of designing for that and having, you're starting those conversations, which is always interesting and something that I value in, uh, in your work. And you, you said something interesting too, kind of how like you felt your vision shift. Like there was a moment and sure there's physical vision, which is kind of one side of it. But there's also kind of that spiritual, mental and like aspirational vision. And, you know, what's the what's the connection between those two as well? Because like you said, we're just taking all of this input and we're kind of perceiving the world around us. And our brain is this computer that's processing it all. And, you know, I don't think there's any coincidence in how these things are related. And especially as you're talking about making the unconscious conscious, you know, that is a shift in vision, both physical and what you're seeing around you, as well as in the perception of it. So I think I think there is kind of a a beautiful kind of mixing pot of all these things you're talking about, which is just being processed by our brain. And it's beyond our comprehension at the moment, but there are things that we can do to become more conscious in our activities so that we have a little more clarity. We're never gonna, we're never gonna know everything, but at least we'll have more clarity. And you definitely don't wanna know everything. Yeah, no, we definitely don't wanna know everything. Uh, but that's something I wanna step into is, and kind of you mentioned this already, is some of the things that we can do. You mentioned diet and how that is, a large contributing factor into our mental health and yeah, our well-being and everything. You know, you mentioned that diet, you mentioned exercise, you mentioned sleep as some of the things you can do, but I'd love to start with a diet. If you could touch on that quickly, kind of how that plays a role in this process. Okay. So I don't know if this is going to be quick. So, um, so, go, so going back <laughs> Keep to it what, quick. Okay. So going back to what I said about vision. Okay. So when I was kind of like doing my research and a, and a pivotal part of like going back to the quote that you read of, you know, I was experiencing life as a moral failure. And then I began to look at myself as a science project. A major part of that realization was essentially realizing that uh, a very complicated series of neurotransmitters, uh, brain chemicals secreting and firing throughout my brain that literally create this vision this this life that I see every day. And mm. so I think, you know, you could view that as a very sort of like scientific, empirical, black and white way to view the world. Um, and I think you know, I'm definitely a spiritual person, but I also think that, you know, human beings, our brains are, are pharmacies. And so they propagate these different chemicals to create our reality. And so a key neurotransmitter that is um, that is frequently brought up in not only the mental health communities, but also the leadership communities is serotonin. Serotonin is a very complicated uh, neurotransmitter that has a lot to do in our body from mood regulation to our appetite, to our sleep, to our social functioning, to our vision. And so, hmm. you know, it was maybe like 20 years ago or maybe a little bit less than that. It was thought of that a neurotransmitter like serotonin is in our brain, right? Like we've been talking about the brain this whole time. Well, it turns out it's actually wrong. Only 5 to 10%, according to the latest science of serotonin, is in our brain. The rest 
90-95% is in our gut microbiome, which is in between our stomach and our intestines, which is a vast and I, I didn't even know about this. I didn't I didn't learn about this one bit when I was growing up in health in health class or whatever. But this is a super complicated ecosystem of trillions of bacteria that have evolved alongside human beings in a symbiotic relationship that have made us the number one species on planet Earth. So when you eat a food, you eat a vegetable, a lot of people don't know this, but our human body can actually process a lot of these foods that we eat. And so what happens is instead of us eating them, our gut microbiome eats our food first, and then it passes it off mm. to the various digestive systems of the human body. And so when you just look at it, okay, the average person probably eats at a minimum three times a day, okay? And when you just break it down that way, everyone has to eat. Everyone has to eat. You know, that's why I start off with food because we're all different in certain ways, but as humans, you have to eat. And so in doing my research, I mean, I was just literally dumbfounded, dumbfounded in the amount of evidence there is in like this emerging degree, this emerging field in healthcare called nutritional psychology, where they're now hmm. really learning that our food is so, so heavily connected to our mental health, let alone physical health. Like forget physical health other than the fact that having good physical health is pretty correlated with having a strong mental health. But forget the fact that like I remember growing up, I didn't know this. I was just taught, hey, here's the Amer here's the um here's the food pyramid, which is crap. Um and then and then mm -hmm. like hey, if you eat too much food, you're gonna get fat. Right. That that was the only understanding that I had of food. And so when I look back and whether it was my health issues, my physical health issues or my mental health issues, like having social anxiety, I mean, dude, in the mornings, <laughs> I was eating cookies, cakes. Um, <laughs> I'd probably come home from lunch and I'd probably eat like one sort of a vegetable that my mom would end up making, but it would probably be like potatoes or something like that. Um, and then I would just eat junk food, junk food on junk food on junk food. And there's a section in my book, it's called um, First My Gut Broke and Then My Brain Broke. And I essentially talk about mm -hmm. when I was in college and I was in a lot of pain and I was using food as a coping mechanism to just deal with my emotions, which is not smart because that's not healthy and doesn't actually solve <laughs> your issues. Um, and I was over <laughs> 200 pounds at one point. And I also began to get, you know, suicidal. And like, that was the only time in my life where I would have classified myself as seriously depressed or as suicidal. Up to that point, even though I had problems, never, never really thought about that at all. And so when your gut microbiome is in the opposite of being, being in symbiosis, of being in a symbiotic relationship, it's in dysbiosis. It creates disease and dysfunction. And I, I mean, I didn't get into into mm. the book, but having a, a gut that's broken is correlated to so many, not even mental health issues, but a lot of physical health is issues from um, diabetes to Alzheimer's to a, a wide variety of cancers. And so on top of that, it's also heavily correlated with um, mental health issues. And so all these things are sort of related, but I think one thing somebody can do if they're listening to this is one it's um, try adding healthier food 
into your diet. So a lot of people, you know, they they hear this and they say, oh man, but I can't, you know, I can't stop eating Oreos or I can't stop eating ice cream. For me, a big issue was ice cream. So like I literally remember eating like a pint of ice cream every night, every night. And that is such a hard addiction to break. And it's in it's in my book. They've actually done studies on people who are addicted to hard drugs versus people who are mm-hmm. addicted to junk food. And there's no difference in their brain. And so the way that I got out of that with ice cream was I just found the closest thing to that, which is frozen fruit. And so I began to make my own ice cream out of frozen fruit. <laughs> and that to me was like, I began to use that. And then what happened was instead of eating an entire pint of ice cream, I would eat like a cup. And then eventually that dwindles down. And then eventually you eat no ice cream. And you do this with all other unhealthy foods. And then if you eat healthy and you've never eaten healthy in your life for like six months, a year, uh, 18 months, you're going you're gonna to notice extreme changes to your brain, to your mood, to your energy, to your state of mind that is going to be unfathomable. And I know for me, this is why I kind of start off with it in the book of like, you need to have your biochemistry as a foundation. You need to have your hardware taken care of. And I make the analogy in my book of like, listen, you could have like the the best IO, the, ver- the best version of iOS, the best software for your iPhone. Like you could have some some like super dope software that like Steve Jobs just like kept to himself and and they like just released it. It's like the best (laughs) software ever. But if you take that amazing software and I define software as like mindset, listening to podcasts, reading books, all these kinds of things. And you take that best software and you try to install that on like the original iPhone or like the iPhone 3GS that's so outdated, that's like broken, that's glitchy. You're Mm -hmm. not going to be able to install. Like, again, you could have the best software. And a lot of people, I think, especially in like the whole self-improvement world, a lot of people are trying to take this software, this awesome software from like a lot of great mentors around the world. And they're trying to just just brute force it. They're trying to shove it in to the hardware. When in reality, they might experience a 1% increase, but then they just see themselves falling back in their behavior. And I believe that, uh, you know, a, a big reason as to why someone like me who experienced pretty severe mental health problems and I was able to climb out of it and not most, not most people do is because I started with my biochemistry unknowingly as a foundation first that then made it infinitely easier to have much long lasting results and to be able to install the mindset, the software much, much, much easier than I think most people with these kinds of issues, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And I mean, that's a really good and interesting point. No, because you're right. I mean, it's one thing to surround yourself like you, a bunch of people talk about, you know, surround yourself with the five people that you want to become like, or you're the average of the five people you spend time with. And it's like, yeah, that's true. But are you capable of becoming that person from a biological and physiological level? You know, like there are certain, there are certain requirements. (laughs) Sure. Uh, But there are certain requirements, right, to be able to actually intake this information to be able to use it. And it sounds like, you know, diet is one of those things that is so influential. And I mean, obviously, throughout your entire body, that it almost positions you to succeed in different areas. So that's kind of one side of it is just this holistic picture. Then you mentioned something else that was really interesting, which is kind of designing your life, you know, replacing ice cream with fruit, you know, Mm. you decided to go to the grocery store and buy fruit instead of ice cream, like that is a decision you made. And that's something we're all capable of. And if you design your life intentionally in that way, then it's much easier to follow through on commitments or ideas or emphasis that you want to do. So there's almost like kind of 
uh, you were intentional, maybe, uh, maybe you weren't intentional, but what you're doing is you're designing your life and your habits in a certain way so that certain triggers were still present, but now the actual routine was different and healthier. So that's super fascinating how you kind of um, were able to come backwards into that little pattern, which is great. Mark, you are absolutely spitting fire and I hate to cut you off because uh, there's so much more to it, but I would recommend anyone who wants to hear more from you, they got to check out the book, Screw Being Shy. We only touched on diet. You also have the same reasoning when it comes to exercise, sleep, um, and this mind-body feedback loop, which is really, really interesting. Can I say something for one second? Yes. Yeah, on that note, actually, yeah, I'm just going to say this. I'm going to try to say it in one minute. I think it's really important. So, um, I mean, I'm not going to talk about exercise because we all know that exercise is good for you and your mental health. But in terms of this mind-body feedback loop, this is what I discovered, man, okay? And this is like another aspect of health that I guess it does influence your chemicals and, and other things. But this is like from a purely mind perspective. So, you know, we're taught and throughout our throughout evolution because of like the Great Depression, because of times where we didn't really have food from like our from like our parents from our older generations there's this mentality of like you should just eat whatever is in front of you because food is sacred right and we might not have enough that's the mentality that i come from okay and obviously it's that's true right and i'm very grateful to have food but it's also like there's a big difference between you satiating your body you filling up your your body in a good way and then you filling up your mind and what I mean is like you can physically put food in like the space of your stomach, but it's a different thing aside from that physical space to actually um, give your body what it needs from food, which is nutrients, which is to reuse into the body. And so mm. I put this example in the book of someone, you're physically hungry, your body's telling you I'm hungry, you go to McDonald's and you buy the standard, you know, I don't know a hamburger, french fries, soda. And now you have physically filled up your stomach, but your body's just like, whoa, 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 whoa. First off, like, what are all these trans fats? What are all these chemicals that you're doing to my body? And there's nothing here that we can actually use in a meaningful and beneficial way at a biochemical level. And so what happens is your brain and your system at large is actually starving. Yet you've just put and your stomach is now filled. And so this confusion, this um, almost uh, a disattachment from our brain and body can literally cause depression and anxiety. Because when your body is telling you, hey, I just put a ton of food in my body, I'm full, but yet your brain is telling you, yo, you're still hungry because you haven't even eaten yet, that can cause a whole host of mental health issues. And I mean, that's just mm -hmm. one aspect of it, but I think it's important to touch on as we close off here. Definitely, man. Yeah, no, I'm glad that you closed off with that, with the mind-body feedback loop, because what it does is it's central to everything we've talked about in the conversation, how your mental health is affected by other decisions, which is affected by your gut. And it's just a very holistic uh, takeaway. And usually that's what I ask for is a takeaway, but I think that uh, you hit it you know, nail on the head, just kind of really bring it back to the central part of what this whole experience is about. So I appreciate that. I think it's fascinating that you, as an individual with social anxiety, find yourself behind a podcast, Mike. That's still something that we need to explore <laughs> and how that even came about in the first place. But in any case, I'm extremely grateful for it because the influence you've had on my life and many others is uh, unforgettable and it's, it's truly impactful. So I thank you from the bottom of my heart, Mark, and uh, I look forward to more conversations here soon. Woo! What an epic conversation that was. 
Usually I hear Mark on my side of the microphone and it was so cool to listen to all of the knowledge that he has acquired in that role. Our conversation was centralized around social anxiety, which is something Mark struggled with for many years. Despite bouts of depression and unhealthy habits, Mark discovered the roots of his challenges and went on addressing them. We talked about the identity of an introvert and being shy and how that plays a role in the equation. We talked about our biochemistry in brain, which led to a fascinating conversation about our diet. All of this and more is covered in Mark's book that launched yesterday, Screw Being Shy, Learn How to Manage Social Anxiety and Be Yourself in Front of Anyone. I'm proud to support this book, and if you or anyone close to you struggles with social anxiety, then I highly suggest you pick up a copy. I read a pre-release version of it, and I found it effective and very eye-opening. The link to buy the book on Amazon can be found in the description for this episode. That is it for today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're on Apple Podcasts, I'd really appreciate if you took two minutes, the length of one of my episodes, to write a review. I so, so appreciate you, and I can't wait to continue growing alongside you. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time on Self-Improvement Daily.